got a picture of my wife and myself to Joe uh, a day late. And so he scrounged around on the Internet and found this picture that is in there. What is this guy doing? I, it was a men's retreat in Texas a few years ago, so my wife didn't like the picture I was going to send anyway, so just as well. Well, I do want to thank Pastor Joe and the elders for uh, inviting me and giving me this opportunity to bring the Word of God to you. Uh, we already have a connection with you as a church. Uh, we have known the Burks family for many years. And 17 years ago, when God opened up a door uh, of ministry to the old order uh, horse and buggy Amish, our brother Nathan was a great help in that ministry. And also, prior to the constituting of our church, Gospel of Grace, a community church, several years prior to its, its origination and since then, Nathan has preached at our church, and the people very much appreciate his ministry. And then also, uh, Nathan uh, Rain and, and Isaac, uh, their family is in our church. Their father, uh, Mark, is a, he is a deacon's deacon. He is a super deacon, and, and we're so grateful for him and, and Amy and their ministry. And then um, just a f- couple weeks ago, we had Robin and, um, and Winnie come and present the work of Glory Bound Ministries. What an excellent work, and, and we're really, it was a joy for us to hear that. Well, I ask you to turn in your Bible, please, to Philippians chapter 1. The letter of Paul to the Philippian church, chapter 1. And in, in verse 3 of that letter, the apostle says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. When the Apostle Paul thought about the Philippian church, it brought to his mind warm and fond memories of his experience with them. And he carried those memories with him into prayer to God for them. They had supported him. They had encouraged him in his ministry. They had participated with him in the cause of the gospel. And so when he prayed for them, he prayed with thanksgiving. But our question is, what did he pray for them? What we will see is what he prayed for that church is what we can pray for any church. It's something that we should desire other people to pray for our church. In fact, it's something that we as individual Christians should pray for ourselves because what he prayed for them is something that God desires to be practiced by every one of us as his people. And that is found in verse 9. That's our text this morning. Paul says, after saying, I I thank God for you, he says, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Well, under the heading this morning, growing in discerning love, I want to present three points. The primacy of love, the presumption of love, and then the progression of love in love prayed for. First of all, the primacy of love. It shouldn't surprise us that when the Apostle Paul keys in on one thing that he's praying for for this church, that he's praying for love. He draws a bead on love. He puts love in the crosshairs, love in the spotlight. He allows love to take center stage in his prayer for them. Friends, it is not an overstatement to say that the whole of the Christian life, a life pleasing to God, A life lived in the fear of God is a life of love. Now, not love in the shallow, sentimental, sappy sense that the world often conceives of love and and often sings about love in its love songs, but love 
as portrayed by God in his word. And let me just remind you of some of the biblical statements that highlight the primacy of love in the believer's life. Matthew 22, 37 to 40, and you're familiar with these. You, you need not turn there. You may just listen. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. But that is the passage where Jesus says, Matthew 22, beginning at verse 37, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. What Jesus is saying is our whole moral duty is love. Love toward God and love toward our neighbor. And they are really the only persons with whom we have to do. There are other beings in the universe. There are angels, but as far as I know, we don't have any responsibility to them. They have responsibility to us. Hebrews says they are ministering spirits sent forth to serve. I'm not sure we have any responsibility to angels. Now, I might say that if an angel happens to appear to you, you will be on your face trembling, and I suggest that you do whatever the angel tells you to do. But that's likely not going to happen. We really don't have any duty toward angels. There is a devil, and there are demons, but our responsibility toward them is to resist them. But the two persons we have responsibility toward is the the person of God and the person of our neighbor. And what is the sum of our duty? It is to love God and love our neighbor. And then 1 Corinthians 13, very familiar to us, often read at weddings. You know, the context was one of rebuke to the Corinthians. They usually not dealt with that way at weddings. But 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels... But I do not have love. I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surround my, surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Paul is saying to possess awe-inspiring gifts to perform extreme self-sacrificing acts, to have mountain-moving faith. If you do it all without love, it amounts to nothing. It is no benefit to you. It is erased as a good work. It is not treasure in heaven. It is, in the language of Paul, wood, hay, and stubble to be burned up rather than gold, silver, and precious stones. Here's another text in 1 Timothy 1.5. I'll just allude to it. Paul says to Timothy, at the outset of this letter to his young understudy, son in the faith, but the goal of our instruction or commandment is love. Now here's Timothy stationed in Ephesus to oversee the church there. And at the front of the letter, he says, Timothy, you're a steward of God. You're entrusted with God's program, God's plan to be worked out in the church. And here is the purpose of God's plan for the ages. Here is the purpose of God's program. Timothy, the goal of our commandment is love. Love is what it is all about. The Corinthian church was a very immature church, as you know, right? Contrary to the Philippian church. Almost every chapter is a different problem. And their problems were rooted in their pride, At one point, Paul says, I think it's chapter 4, verse 7, what do you have that you haven't received? 
If you received it, why do you boast as if you haven't received it? They had a problem with pride. Love, friends, is the opposite and the antidote to pride. Because pride is all about ourselves. Love does not seek its own. And so at the end of the letter, 1 Corinthians, as he is giving some staccato exhortations, things are popping into his mind and he's closing the letter, here's what one of those exhortations in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Let all that you do be done in love. Wow. It's one of those all-encompassing, life-dominating directives. All done in love. Nothing we do, Godward or manward, is to be done apart from the motive and manner of love. So the Beatles had it right after all, didn't they? When they sang, all you need is love. Love is all you need. Love is all you need. Love is all you need. <laughs> Ad nauseum. If only they hadn't gotten into Eastern mysticism and, and religion and drugs. But it's really true in the biblical sense. Love is what it is all about. And the longer I live, the more, in a sense, life becomes simplified. It is a matter of loving God more, loving my neighbor more, and loving myself less. Because I don't know about you, but I still love myself too much. Do you see the primacy of love? The prime importance of love in the New Testament. But now consider the presumption of love. When Paul prays that their love would abound still more and more, there's a presumption here that was not true of every church to which he wrote. And the presumption is that they were already abounding in love. You see the language? May your love abound still more and more. He's presuming that they're already a very loving church. First of all, there was a great love they had for Paul himself. It was with good reason that uh, he had the affection he did for them. In verse 8, it says, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He had an affectionate uh, warmth toward them. Why? Verses 4 and 5. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. They loved Paul. And they showed that love in very specific ways. They supported him financially. It says in verse 7, they supported him in his imprisonment. They supported him personally when he was in prison. They didn't just send gifts. They sent a person, a man, Epaphroditus, to be with him so he wouldn't be alone. They supported him consistently. In chapter 4, verse 10, he says you, they've had a perpetual concern for him. They supported him uniquely. In chapter 4, 15, he, he says at, at one point that you were the only church supporting me. They supported him tangibly with financial, monetary gifts. They supported him repeatedly. He says in 4.16, more than once. And they supported him generously. He says, I am amply supplied. And so the Philippian church abounded in love toward the Apostle Paul. They loved him. But they loved him because they loved God. And they loved Christ. They loved him not for who he was as a mere man. But they loved Paul because he was God's man. And he was a man on God's mission. They loved him because they loved God. And they loved Christ. And they loved the gospel to which he was committed. And so in chapter 1, verse 5, 
He talks of their fellowship with him in the gospel. In verse 7, their support of him was in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And the man that they had sent to Paul in prison, Epaphroditus, it says in chapter 225, verse 30, he almost died for the cause of Christ. And so Paul's prayer for more love for this church was to a church that already was displaying an abundance of love for Paul and the cause that he represented, the gospel. And so he's presupposing that they already were abounding in love. And I've heard some things about you, Calvary Bible Church, that I think indicate that there's an abundance of love in this place. I don't know this because I'm omniscient, because I'm not, but I have heard. And to some degree, at least being here for an hour, I've seen. I know this is a place where you love God. Why do I know that? Because Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And his commandments are found in his word. And I know that this is a place increasingly rare where the word of God is preached faithfully. The whole counsel of God is preached by men who are not ashamed of the gospel. I know this is a place where where doctrine is important to you. And doctrine is increasingly becoming less popular in our day. I believe there is an abundance of love for God and his word in this place. I think there's a love for God, for God's people here. So I, I hear, I do hear that there's a spirit of volunteerism. And you don't always need Pastor Joe to volunteer you. But what I've heard is when there's a need presented, hands go up. I'll do that. I'll go there. That shows a love for the brethren, the body of Christ. I think you have a VBS. I'm told that you interact with the parents who bring their kids to church activities. You want to um, draw them in. I think you have a love for the lost. I'm told that you are very generous in your missions giving. And we experienced at least one of those ministries to which you're attached, Glory Bound Ministries. And uh, you care about the lost. You have... Uh, an outreach to the lost. So I believe there's a, this is a church where there is an abundance of love. I hope that's the case. But even if it is, you, as well as my church, needs to abound still more and more in love with all knowledge, real knowledge and all discernment. So let's consider the third point, the progression in love that is prayed for. And my first point there is progress is par for the Christian course. Or if Rodney's here, can I say progress? Anybody from Canada here? Nobody? Okay. I was going to say progress just once because the real way to say it is progress. But progress is par for the Christian course. In the overall scheme of the Christian's experience, there are some things that are fixed once for all events. Our justification is one such thing. Once and done. Our justification is God's declaration as judge upon a believer in Jesus Christ that you are perfectly righteous in his sight. Not based on your own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus that is credited or imputed to you. Once and done. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The result, Romans 8.1. 1. 
There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Not one drop, not one iota of God's holy wrath will ever fall upon your head as a believer in Jesus because Jesus has absorbed all the wrath that you ever deserved. And at this point, I would say, if there's anyone here who is not a believer, you need to be justified. In order to be right with God, in order to go to heaven, you need a righteousness outside of yourself because in yourself you are not righteous. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Where are you going to get a goodness that's going to pass muster with God in the day of judgment? God in his grace has provided a goodness, a righteousness, that of Jesus who lived a perfect life. And when you, put, when you repent of your sin, turn from your sin, put your trust wholly in Jesus, God takes all of your sin, even your future sin, puts it on Jesus. He becomes the dumping ground of our sin, punished for our sin, and God in turn makes this great exchange. He credits to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus. You say, that's not fair that Jesus take my sin and I get his righteousness. No, it's not fair. It's called grace. An unbeliever, you need that grace. You need to come to Jesus, put your trust in him, and receive that righteousness. That's once and done. In my case, it's been 52 and a half years ago that by grace alone, I put my faith in Jesus. And I like to put it this way. At that point, he clothed me with the spotless white robe of Jesus' righteousness. Now, I've been wearing that robe, as it were, for 52 and a half years. If I ask you rhetorically, what does it look like now? The answer is, it's still spotless white. Because it wasn't my righteousness. It was his righteousness that God wrapped around me. And it is in that righteousness that I will stand before God. And on that basis alone will be received into heaven by God. You see, justification is once and done. Likewise, glorification, the capstone of our salvation, when we receive a new glorified body, like the body of Jesus' resurrected body. 1 Corinthians 15 says, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed. You see, glorification is not a a gradual process of metamorphosis. It's an instantaneous change. Justification Once and done, glorification, instantaneous. But what's in the middle of the salvation sandwich, so to speak? You know, sanctification, right? Sanctification does begin with a definitive work of God in us. That's what theologians call definitive sanctification, where sin is dethroned and his spirit is enthroned. But then it launches a process that is lifelong of growing in grace, growing, in holiness, becoming more and more like Jesus. And the Christian life admits of growth. It is a watchword of the Christian life. And let me just mention some passages. Right here in Philippians, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've obeyed, but now much more, more obedience. In chapter 3, verse 12, Paul, the great apostle, perhaps the greatest Christian who's ever lived, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. 
One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, it's a process. And then outside of the book of Philippians, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You're doing the work of the Lord? Keep abounding in it. 2 Corinthians 4.15, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Are you a thankful person? Abound more in thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 4.1, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us as to how you ought to walk and please God, that you excel still more as your life pleasing to God. May you excel in that. 2 Thessalonians 1.3, your faith is greatly enlarged. Colossians 1, 9 and 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. You see, Paul would not allow us to be satisfied with where we are now. Whatever level of maturity you have attained as a Christian, Paul says, onward and upward. There needs to be more. Nor will the other writers of Scripture allow us to be content with where we are now. There needs to be more work for the Lord, more giving of thanks, more faith, more knowledge of God, more grace. But in particular, for our purposes this morning, we need to abound more and more in love. And let's focus on that. And let me just give you some other scriptures outside of Philippians, which indicate that no matter how loving you are now, you need to abound more and more in love. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. Increase. And abound. You love one another, good. May you increase. First Thessalonians 4, 9, and 10, speaking of love for one another. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Second Thessalonians 1, 3. The love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. Hebrews 13, 1. Let love of the brethren continue. Love can diminish. Love can wane. So he says, let it continue. Don't quit loving. Here's one, 1 Peter 1.22. Fervently love one another from the heart. What does that indicate? Love can cool off, can it? And so maintain the warmth, maintain the heat of your love for one another. Love can be merely outward. He says, make sure it's from the heart. 1 John 3.18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed in truth. Love can be mere talk. And not action. First John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Love needs to be perfected. And Jude 21, we're Calvinists. We know that God keeps us. But the balance of truth is we have responsibility. We are Calvinists, aren't we, Joe? Okay, good. I thought I'd check that out. <laughs> I wouldn't say that in every place. We're Calvinists. We believe God will keep us. But at the same time, Jude 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God. He ends with, you know, now him who was able to keep you from falling, who keeps? God does. And I do. Right? That's the balance of truth. So you see that we are to increase and abound in love, excel still more, continue in love, maintain the fervency of love. Don't let it re be reduced to empty talk, but shown in deeds. But here's the question. How can I know if my love is growing and maturing? Here's where Paul's statement gives us two metrics by which we might measure 
our growth in love. I pray that your love may abound still more and more in what? Real knowledge and all discernment. Love needs to grow in the realms of knowledge and discernment. Let's explore that for a few minutes. First of all, love must abound in real knowledge. It's the word epinosis. The word for knowledge is gnosis. And there's a little prefix in front of it in the Greek. And that that intensifies it. It makes it more strong. He's talking about intimate knowledge, a full and advanced knowledge. Often, it speaks of knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 4.3, foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Colossians 1.4, the gospel since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. Same word, understood, epinosis, epigenosco. Luke 1.4, Luke writes, so that you may know the exact truth, epigenosco. The point is that knowledge of truth and love go together. No one makes it more clear than the Apostle John. And he does that. I'll just read the first three verses of his second epistle. Listen to how truth and love are interwoven. They go together. In 2 John 1 to 3, it's only one chapter. He says, The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Truth and love. Listen to what one British commentator, Peter Barnes, says in his commentary. In Scripture, truth and love are married to each other. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, 1 Corinthians 13. Christians are always to speak the truth in love, and so grow up into Christ, Ephesians 4.15. When these two concepts are divorced, the result is disastrous. Listen to these words. Love without truth is sentimentality. Truth without love is oppression. What God demands of us is not a bit of love and a bit of truth, but love and truth in all their fullest. What modern society so often separates, the Bible joins together. So mature love is knowledgeable love. It is love mixed with truth, love founded on truth. Not only that, but may your love abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Love must abound in all discernment. The word discernment essentially means the ability to discern between right and wrong, good and bad. A very similar word is used in Hebrews 5.14 where Paul says the mature who don't need milk anymore but solid food are those who have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So love and knowledge of truth go together And here, love and discernment between good and evil go together. So our love is to abound. Our love is to increase all the more. And the kind of love that is to grow in us is love coupled with real knowledge and discernment. What does that look like in everyday life? Well, let's talk about discerning love in marriage. 
Husbands, you know that your main duty to your, toward your wife is to love her on the high order of Christ's love for his church, a self-giving, sacrificial love. You wives, your primary duty, according to Ephesians 5, is not to love your husbands, but to what? I hope you know, to respect them and to submit to them. However, in Titus 2, the older women are to train the younger women to love their husbands. So we say love in marriage is a two-way street. We're to love each other with a knowledgeable and discerning love. It fits with 1 Peter 3, 7, where Paul says to husbands, husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. And that word is katanosin, live according to knowledge with your wife. That means that we are to study our wives, to learn what pleases them and displeases them. Love and knowledge go together. And I have to confess to you, after more than 40 years of marriage, I don't do that as well as I ought. I am not the best student of my wife. And still learning things that probably I should have learned years ago. I think we can talk here about love languages. Are you familiar with that concept? There's a book, Love Language. And I think it's a, it's a legitimate concept. It basically says that we need to love our partner on the basis of what they perceive to be love, right? How they want to be loved within biblical boundaries, right? So quite a few years ago, our children were young. My wife did a wonderful thing for me. She planned for my birthday a fishing trip. I love fishing. It is my one hobby. And it was in November. She arranged for the care of our children. She planned this trip an hour and a half away. And we didn't catch anything, and we were freezing. But it was such an expression of her love for me. She was speaking my language, right? I'm going to take them on a fishing trip. That's great. Showed that she was attuned to what is loving to me. Now, if I, my wife's birthday is in July, it's a much better time for fishing. Suppose I were saying, honey, I've got a surprise for you. We're going on a fishing trip. And my wife cares nothing for fishing. She would say, oh, okay. But she would think in her mind, who are you really loving, me or yourself? But my wife is a professional violinist. If I said, hey, I've arranged for us to go to the Kimmel Center and listen to a world-class violinist, as we did a couple of weeks ago, not by my initiative, but invited by friends, and to hear Hilary Hahn. And she was just, you know, in ecstasy um, listening to that. That's her love language. So what I'm saying is we need to be attuned to one another in marriage and love that other person knowledgeably according to what they perceive as love. Let your love abound in real knowledge and all discernment. How about discerning love in our parenting? And here I will focus on our young children. The Bible says, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The second word, instruction, nuthesia, is verbal instruction. The first part, Jay Adams used to say, discipline training with teeth. Discipline, paideia. And that involves the rod. And the Bible teaches us that we are to use the rod of correction, right? Now, Got to be careful in our day where you do that because the world hates that concept of spanking and they will accuse you of being a child abuser. 
My son and daughter-in-law and grandchildren live in California, a very wicked state. And so they use, for, for discipline, when they're going to apply the rod, they use the word encouragement. And it's true. It is encouragement. But if my granddaughter sees it coming, she says, I don't want to get encouragement. It's kind of funny, you know, to hear her say that. But she knows what's coming. But that's kind of a safeguard, right, to protect wise as serpents, harmless as doves, as were sheep amidst wolves. But the world may view that as hate. But what does God say? Proverbs twenty-two fifteen: foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. Proverbs 23, 13, and 14 says, if you love your child, you'll employ the rod. If you withhold the rod, you hate your child. Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom. What that tells us is that the rod is not my child's enemy. The foolishness in my child's heart is the enemy. The rod is the friend to drive the foolishness out. And if I don't use the rod and love them in a biblical way... The foolishness will fester. They will grow up to be fools who do not know God and they'll be lost. And so we love in a discerning way. We love according to knowledge as God speaks of it. So if you love your child with a discerning love, you will not spare the instrument that God has given you to drive the foolishness out. Now, I'm quick to say, and when I always teach on this, I say we apply the rod with self-control, We apply it not angrily, reasonably, proportionately, safely, justly, lovingly, and all, but you use the rod. Let's talk about discerning love toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember where we are? May your love abound still more and more. Real knowledge and all discernment. What does it mean to love your brothers and sisters in Christ knowledgeably and discerningly? Well... We have about 25 to 30 one another duties in the New Testament, right, that constitute biblical fellowship. Um, One of the texts that has been very helpful for me as a paradigm, but it's not given only to pastors. It's given to all the Christians. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul says to the whole church, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. That is so helpful. The word unruly is a a word that means to be militarily out of line. Everybody's marching in one direction and this person's marching the other direction. But not in a Gomer Pyle sense. You know, poor Gomer Pyle, he was just ignorant and dumb. He didn't know what he was doing. But it's in a, a willful sense. Everybody's marching this way, I'm marching the other way. That's the word unruly. And in Thessalonica... There was a man or people who thought Jesus was coming back soon, so we're going to quit work and we're going to mooch off of other people. They need admonition. They need stern warning. In fact, he even says, don't associate with them. That's the unruly, stubborn, disobedient person. Admonition. But then, encourage the faint-hearted. The word faint-hearted literally is two Greek words. It means small-souled. Not a great-hearted Christian, but a small-souled Christian. A Christian who's downcast. A Christian who's discouraged. What do you do with that one? You don't admonish. You encourage the faint-hearted. It's the same word used in John eleven nineteen. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them because their brother had died. You bring words of consolation and sympathy and compassion. And then the third category, help the weak. They're weak. They're weak in their faith. The word help means, and teko means to cleave to, 
Hold to them firmly. You've got to hold them up. Come alongside them. Don't leave them alone. Visit them. Bring words to strengthen them. We used to say back in the hippie days, different strokes for different folks, right? Some of you remember that. But um, that's what Paul is calling us to do. We love discerningly, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Another way that we are to love discerningly one another is in the realm of Christian liberty of conscience. That is so important. It's really important to us in our church. There are some areas that are not morally right or wrong for everyone, but it's according to your individual conscience. And Paul says in Romans 14, 13, Therefore let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. For if because of food your brother is hurt, verse 15, you are no longer walking according to love. A brother may be weak in conscience. I need to love that person by being sensitive to their conscience. Suppose a person has been a slave to alcohol their whole life. Oh, you may have the freedom to drink wine with your meal, but if you invite that person over, it's probably not good for you to drink wine in front of that person because it will tempt them. Suppose a person has been enslaved to sports and sports has become an idol to them. Maybe the best thing is not to invite them to a Phillies game or an Eagles game. You want to have regard for their conscience, which is weak in one area where yours is strong. It's another way we show love. So we love one another depending on the state and frame and the need of that other person. That involves a personal knowledge. It involves studying that person, assessing them. Who are they? What have they been through? What are their patterns? What are they facing? And we address them with discerning love. I've used this illustration. Most of you have garden hoses and you have a spray nozzle, right? And the spray nozzle has different settings. There is a gentle, uh, gentle spray, gentle shower, and there's the jet spray. When I'm washing my car and need to rinse it, I don't use the gentle shower. It'll never get the job done. I use the jet spray to get that water off. When my wife waters her flowers, she doesn't use the jet spray. It would blow them out of the ground. She uses the gentle shower. It's all water, but it's water applied with different degrees of force. So it is with love. It's all love, but how it shows itself is going to vary. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Let's talk briefly about discerning love in our evangelism. Jesus didn't have a one-size-fits-all approach to evangelism, did he? He loved sinners. He came to die for sinners. But just compare John 3 and John 4. John 3, Nicodemus comes to him, and what does he do? He doesn't waste any time, no shop talk. Gets right to the point, hits him square between the eyes. You must be born again. Don't you know this? You're a leader in Israel. One chapter later, he's dealing with the immoral, half-Jew Samaritan woman. Does he hit her between the eyes? Lady, you're a sinner, you're an adulterer. No. He draws her in, wets her appetite, makes her curious. Eventually gets around to, she wants this water of life? Okay, go call your husband. He knew she didn't have a legitimate husband, and she had several before. You see the different approach that Jesus took to the woman versus Nicodemus. Evangelism requires knowledge and discernment. The Apostle Paul said in Colossians 4, 5, and 6, conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, 
so that you may know how to answer every person. Evangelism requires discernment and knowledge. Who am I talking to? What is their background? How much should I say? When should I say it? When should I end the conversation? What questions should I ask? A lot of knowledge, a lot of discernment. If, you're, if the tongue of the wise is going to make knowledge acceptable, as the proverb says. Well, then, finally, let's talk about discerning love toward God. We're talking about discerning love toward other people, but we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do we show our love for God? When Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In Luke 6, 46, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I'm preaching through Mark, and we came to Mark 8, 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with holy angels. How do we love God with a discerning, knowledgeable love? Well, first of all, I want to say negatively, we need to discern, expose, resist, and as pastors, warn against every thought form, philosophy, and ideology that is contrary to the word of God and Christ. You want to be unashamed of the words of Jesus in our generation, an increasingly sinful, adulterous generation? We must be unashamed of the worldview of the Bible. What does that mean? What are the ideologies that are threatening the truth of the gospel and the word of God in our day. I probably don't need to tell you, but the moral revolution, which is embracing sexual perversions, homosexuality, transgenderism, essentially anything that goes under the acronym of LGBTQ+, is wicked, it's contrary to God. Anything that rejects the gender binary of male and female, it must be viewed as wicked, contrary to the law of God, and resisted. The perversion of marriage as other than between a man and a woman. Egalitarianism growing in our day in Christian circles where we're failing to recognize the assigned roles of men and women, allowing women to be pastors and preachers, which God forbids. Critical theory that defines society in a Marxist way as oppressors and oppressed rather than according to the biblical categories of saved and unsaved. Social justice, which is not biblical justice, but leads people to great injustice, and it it leads them to commit the racism they're supposedly against. Ends up dividing people rather than uniting. Intersectionality, which leads people to believe they are victims and feeds bitterness, hatred, and entitlement. And you know, it does great harm to people because Jesus didn't come to save victims. He came to save sinners. And as long as you see yourself as a victim, you're immune to the gospel. Statism, the growing encroachment of the state upon our rights in a tyrannical way, these are things that are threatening the truth of God and the gospel in our day. And if you love God in this adulterous and sinful generation, you will not be ashamed of these things. You will speak out about these things. And I tell you, friends, you know it. When you uphold the truth of God that you know is love, you're going to be called a hater. But I tell you, don't let the world, with its categories, guilt you into seeing something as hate, which you know from the word of God is love. Now, when we speak the truth, we need to speak it in a loving, gracious, humble manner. 
doesn't matter. Even if you do, you will still be called a hater. Don't take your, don't let the world dictate to your conscience, but let the word of God tell you what is love, and you act and you speak in love according to God's word, not the mindset of this sin-darkened world. And then positively, if we love God, we're not only going to resist and oppose all that is contrary to his word, but we're going to be a people of the word. We're going to want to seek him in his word, understand his word accurately, feed our souls upon the word regularly, live it out in our lives consistently, and speak it. One seasoned pastor recently said, when we confront the culture, we need to do it redemptively. Redemptively. He said, churches exist in three classes when it comes to culture. Those who are complicit with the ungodly culture, those who are complacent, and those who are courageous. May we be courageous in standing for the truth of God in our day and against the evil of our day. May we do it lovingly with the truth of the gospel. I close with this, a mention made on a podcast that I enjoy reading. With the elections coming up, you know, we all have our political opinion. I trust we're all unified here. Someone said, we don't need so much, we don't need so much a red wave as we need a crimson tide. We're not out to just reform society. We want to see people regenerated and transformed by the saving blood of Jesus Christ. Amen.